This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and here is my future-gazing co-host, Jan. How you doing, Jan? See, now I know you're lying, because if I was future-gazing, I would have been able to see what I was going to say right now, and I would not have been lost for words. Uh, Hi, Dave. Well, <laughs> maybe your vision is clouded, shrouded by what is to come. Oh, God. That went dark. <laughs> I clean my glasses, so it can't be that. Very. Oh, I was thinking very Lord of the Ringsy, but there we go. Never mind. Anyway, uh, we're here to talk about uh, something not very Lord of the Ringsy, which is, well, maybe, which is the the internet in 2030. Uh, we're not there yet. If you're listening to this or watching this <laughs> podcast in 2030 comment below on what yeah. the internet's really like and Get just how wrong we are um there was a, an article that has inspired this particular um conversation which was on uh, on gizmodo which had a, a variety of people talking about what they thought uh, the internet in 2030 was going to look like and i thought it was an interesting enough topic for us to uh voice our opinions so by all means go and have a little a little poke at that article if you're curious but this is more about what we think um things might evolve towards rather than um you know paying too much close attention to that particular article yeah 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 i mean the first we did some preparation for this episode this is a or oh, uh, in more than one way <laughs> sorry uh, it's going to say this was a uh, rare occasion, was it, that we did preparation? No? Yeah, we do okay. it once a year, and well, okay. this goes live, if all goes well, at the end, at the very end of 2020. So, yeah, we kind of had to for this one. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we prepared at least one episode this year. That makes me feel very good. Yeah, and the first topic we kind of prepared is most in line with the article you found as inspiration for this, because that article is very much about the whole geopolitical situation, uh, nationalist and for, um, uh, nationalist tendencies of a lot of states these days. Mm. We kind of decided we wouldn't go too deep on that end, because we do like to make this a fun podcast, I guess. Mm-hmm. But we uh, try. sorry, we try. We try. <laughs> I hope we succeed a little bit. But uh, anyway, let's get the, the, the negativism out of the way first and talk about uh, point one. We'll have more than one internet in 2030. We already see that a little bit today with uh, China having the Chinese firewall up and running, Russia doing kind of the same thing. America at the moment isn't cutting itself off, although it, if you look on how the last again political situation has evolved there they are definitely also moving into a kind of isolationist movement of course here in europe we have brexit at time of recording mm -hmm. we don't know if it's happened but by the time this publishes we probably will so let's not deal on that too yeah. much yeah i mean there's there's a, there's a few other examples out there obviously you know uh, north korea has its own yep. very highly segregated um, network of communication, which is not an internet, but is their equivalent. Um, it's a supreme. You also internet. you also see you also see countries like connected to the same network, but having very different experiences where there are 
you know, significant language barriers, uh, for example, you know, it, uh, the experience um, of the internet for a Japanese person is very different to the internet experience for an English speaking person, for example. And you know, that those, you know, they're, they're on the same network. It's just that English people very rarely read Japanese only content or consume Japanese only content and vice versa. Um, so quite so much the other way around because a lot of English reading uh, and speaking sort of um, people in Japan, but you won't see very many English speaking and reading people trying to comprehend um, Japanese websites. So there's, there's the geopolitical side of things. There's the just consumption of information side of things, but the, there's also a lot of, as you were saying, kind of movements towards countries having more control over what they allow their citizens to read or use. Um, you know, we've seen application platforms be sort of banned in certain countries. India has yep. banned a number of, of platforms. The US has banned a number of platforms and applications. Um, it it's sort of the internet is definitely not as free and open and global as perhaps it, it once was portrayed. Well, it's become more global, which means it's bigger. There's a lot more on there. Uh, I mean, when it started, English was the lingua franca of the internet. If you did say anything on the internet, it was in English because it came from DARPA, it came from the universities in the US. Mm. Uh, Netherlands was kind of also at the, at the forefront there as well. But again, everything was English based by having the internet grow, grow, grow. You get more diversity, which is a good thing, but you also get more grouping, if that is a way of saying it, more classes uh, coming up and not meaning anything high class or low class, but more grouping, classification theory kind of things. Mm. And um, at the moment, we're really talking about governments doing bad things and blocking the internet. I think there's also another way of looking at this, and GDPR could be a reason why we get a bifurcated internet. At the moment... It is the case, I think, that the most stringent laws out there dictate what everybody else needs to do. We saw that with GDPR. Europe had GDPR put in place, and American companies kind of had to follow suit, even though they didn't have to, but then it would lose their global reach on the whole thing. Now, if you extrapolate upon that, and let's say that that goes further in this direction, it would make sense to have a kind of a border control between the European and the US internet, where if you go over the border, you're no longer in GDPR land, and those sites can have different behaviors, different uh, can and can't do things. And that's a different way of looking at the uh, segregation of the internet, not for geopolitical reasons, but more for business reasons, be it good mm. or bad. I'm not going to go into depth in that one. But I'm kind of wondering then what that border crossing would look like practically how would i see this would i have to log on somewhere to say because if you cross a borderline now i have to have a passport and show this is me i'm me this is me mm. the picture fingerprints whatever and the next step there is of course and i'm jumping the gun a bit here is anonymity because if you have that kind of a border control it makes no sense unless you can actually identify the person that's making that step and that would then lead into loss of anonymity, at least if you go across the borders. Legally, yeah. So 
I think like some some of this already exists today in a very rudimentary form in that websites do already present different mm-hmm. um different faces depending on where they determine your sort of um your connecting to the site from you know if you if you sign you know create a netflix account and sign in and you set your vpn dest- uh, sort of outward outbound point to somewhere in the us you will get a different experience to if you do that in a, a country outside the us if you uh, attempt to visit um, a company's website um, within from within Europe. Sometimes you get just denied access. It's just yeah. like this this website is not open to people outside of the US, for example, um, or not open to people within Europe. And sometimes you get a different experience, which is you know you're presented with a lot of box boxes and check boxes that you need to tick and say yes, I agree to this that and the other thing um whereas if you visit those you know websites from other locations you don't get any of that experience so i can definitely see a a continued growth of that sort of technology and that sort of evolution happening the the next step that you mention around identification and you know verifying that you are who you say that you are before you visit any of these sites. Um, there was a, a, a laughable um, sort of conversation in the UK um, during, I think it was during 2019, 2020, uh, possibly just as ridiculous as Brexit, although not as impactful. Was this, was this concept of there being a porn pass and if you wanted to um, view any form of pornography, you would have to verify that you were over a certain age. And of course, this brought in a, a huge number of, of questions of like, how on earth would a UK government, you know, be able to put this in place and, you know, and control this with every single global provider of pornography like it's it was crazy but you know fast forward another sort of 10 years or so like could that be a thing for everybody like possibly if if we're talking about countries and um nation states and you know larger scale you know geopolitical entities like Europe having more control over what their citizens can see and do and interact with, then, yeah, I, I can actually see that in the future something like that may well exist, which is very strange from sort of viewing things as the way that we see them at the moment for the most case. No, I do think we're going towards that because things like cyberbullying, uh, online stalking, things like that. There's getting more and more of danger on the internet, and more people are on the internet. People that might sh- possibly not should not be there. <laughs> Leave that <laughs> to that. But there will there is a movement going on where government is trying to protect their citizens more and more from the evil internet. And at a certain point, anonymity becomes a problem. There, of course, this is also interweaved with the whole um, uh, encryption thing. 
there's been yeah. a, a new regulation happening in the EU recently where they're trying again to ban uh, hard encryption or there need to be back doors in place, which means it's not <laughs> encrypted, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, all of these movements are coming from the point of view of protecting the children from pornography or terrorism related things, whatever, bad, yeah. quote, quote, bad things. And in the end, the only way you can do that is by having real IDs, have knowing who you are, that you are who you are, being verified persons online. There's some advantages there, things like voting. If you look at the last year, voting in public was annoying with the whole COVID pandemic. It was impossible. So a lot of people went to voting by email, which isn't ideal either. I mean, ideally, I would go to a website, authenticate myself, vote. No need to go outside, can takes five minutes, everybody could do it. And actually, I'm a Belgian national, and I do have a digital ID card that I can put in a card reader to authenticate myself through that. Mm. The problem, of course, is that how do I know I'm still voting anonymously? Because I just totally identified myself and then voted. Yeah. That's the next thing, of course. But uh, I mean, I, I just remember now that uh, years ago, Warcraft. World of Warcraft had instigated on their forums that you had to have that real ID. You needed to have mm. a verified person ID. I think that whole thing lasted all of two days before they yeah. pulled it back. So the thing is, I'm pretty sure people, will, the governments or organizations, be they commercial or governmental, will push towards a lessened anonymy, anonymization on the on the internet. Yeah, will. Joe Public accept that, and will he have he or she have a choice? Yeah, yeah. I I also think that a lot of even today a lot of people's understanding of their anonymity on the internet is vastly misunderstood. Like for a lot of organisations, you're not anonymous at all. Um, they know exactly who you are. They know uh, a lot of information about you. They are controlled often by a lot of regulations on what they can and cannot control and store and how they can use that information. But you should not be surprised that you actually have relatively little anonymity online. The the average you know, Joe Public, um, Joanne Public uh, user, the, you know, people that take a handful of steps, you know, various kind of anonymizing steps, whether it's VPNs, various privacy scrubbing plugins and all kinds of other methods are better off, I suppose, from their anonymity fractionally. But it's, there's a lot there's a lot more that organizations uh, have in terms of visibility of most people than, than, than the majority of the sort of internet users actually think about. And that's whether we're talking about government states, whether we're talking about the, the providers of that internet service, whether we're talking about the, the major organizations that drive a lot of that, um, that communication and um, you know, advertising or social networking. You know, if you were to be able to build a consistent picture across all of these things, um, you'd have a scarily accurate picture of, of you, know, you as an individual. 
Yeah, but I do think there's a difference between the government point of view and the commercial point of view. Because if you're looking at uh, the Facebooks of the world, let's take the, the big boogeyman out there, they don't care that my name is Jon. They care that I'm Caucasian, living in Holland, uh, having a certain income level, working in a certain business, say, so they can sell me stuff. But whether my mm -hmm. name is Jon or not, what my social security number is, they don't care because that's not something they can do something with. And the whole uh, privacy issues have been, you aren't able to, you're not, not allowed to store things like names and things like that. But that's the stuff they don't care about anyway. So basically GDPR doesn't really help there at all. On the government part, of course, it's different because their governments, you're thinking things like fines, taxes, things like that. And they yeah. have to be able to find you and give you something or take something from you. So there yeah. is a difference there. And I'm totally agreeing that at the moment, the first thing I'm talking about, that kind of anonymity doesn't exist. The Facebooks, the Googles, the, the Microsofts, the Amazons, they know exactly how to target their audience that's gone and all of those obfuscation tools. You can make it harder. And from the point of view, if my front door is hard, is harder to break into than my neighbor's one, that's a good yep. thing, I guess. <laughs> uh, but on the other side, the government part, you're right as well, because you have to give that information. I do my taxes online every year. So the government mm -hmm. knows where I am, what I am, what I have. All my bank accounts, my, my financial information is being shared without my say-so. That's just law that just happens. Yeah. So even though there's a difference between the two that I want to talk about, both of them are already available online. Fortunately, today, they don't connect yet. Well, you say that they don't connect, but that doesn't mean that unscrupulous people are not able to connect them. And that's where the, that's where the problems lie. When we they shouldn't connect yet. About, they shouldn't connect, but people make the connections is the, is the problem. Whether it's, you know, developers you know, unintentionally collecting information that they shouldn't be doing, whether in creating systems that have that information in it, whether it's data breaches of, you know, governmental or any but other even sort without of data breaches. Systems. I mean, why did Apple become a bank? Apple Pay. Apple is a bank now. For that for mm. the banking side, they need all of the government information and they already had all that advertisement information. So they got it all. Yeah. Google so, Yeah. Anonymity, Facebook, I think, is, is already a, a bit of a a bit of an illusion, and will likely become you know, less of an illusion. And that just yeah. there, there will be very little anonymity. Actually, for me, at this point in time, just go go for it. Just rip away the veil of obscurity. There, just make sure everybody <laughs> understands you're not anonymous. It's all available. Deal with it because mm -hmm. it's reality anyway. At this point, pretty much. Yeah, take away the the guessing game. It would make I think a lot of people double take or think again before they do certain things online, and that would yeah. always be a good thing. Sorry. Yeah. Well, we we've mentioned the the boogie, the boogie men, the boogie people, the uh, the sort of the organizations sort of collectively known as Fang, which is sort of often the the, the names sometimes change, but Often it's referred to as you know, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, the sort of the largest um, online companies that have some level of monopoly in, in the tech world of you know, data in some way, shape or form. The, 
you know, one of the thoughts that I had around this is how that is likely to change in the next 10 years. You know, we, we've already seen like some of these organizations are less than 10 years old. Some of them have, you know, sprung up in that time. And we're, you know, we're definitely expecting that multiple other organizations over the next 10 years will continue to, to spring up out of new, out of nowhere with sort of revolutionary ideas and, and will will kind of change the way that things work. That's just history has told us that will continue to happen. It will some of it will be from angles that we expect, and some of it will be from completely different angles. But there's also a lot happening uh, on the government side of things to start to put in more regulation around these organisations, whether it's you know forcing them to pay their taxes, whether it's getting to the point where they're actually governments are saying these organizations are monopolies and that they, they must be, be split up into separate, separate segments, separate, separate business, separate businesses that, that, you know, give someone else a chance to compete with them. Um, I honestly don't know what the, what the FANG group of 2030 would would likely look like like will will some of these still be around probably will they all still be around probably not will they all look the same as they do today again probably not but i don't i mean i don't know john if you have any ideas as to how you expect this this kind of situation to evolve but i think this is one of the things that is very difficult to kind of predict i mean they definitely won't look the way they look today because if you don't move at the times you don't survive basically so they mm -hmm. will change they will adapt that's definite we actually had a news episode oh god six months ago something that we talked about startups and how it's very hard for a startup to become relevant these days because the moment they reach that relevance level they get bought up they get acquired by one of the big fang uh, group companies mm -hmm. and that's why i think in 30 years they will definitely be around still names may have changed branding may have changed that may be different but the company organizations around it i think we're i'd actually say we're at the moment where we can choose to stop them or not because at the moment they're becoming so powerful that they become unstoppable and it's kind of now or never and if they're still around in 2030 they'll be around in 3020. Mm. So I think the next 10 years will be very indicative on how the world decides, chooses, to kind of deal with the corporization of the world. Do they start competing with governments, with nation states as geopolitical powers? I mean, they are geopolitical powers. Yeah. You can say what you want, but Amazon has a big sway on how the world runs today. Same with Google, same with Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Apple. Do we want that? Do we not want that? Do we prefer the corporate overlords over the taxation government overlords? I mean, I think they're all bad. So for me, I don't really care. Yeah. It's a question of the of this age. And I do think by 2030, we'll have made a decision left or right, what the decision will be. Is it too late? Are the corporations so powerful already that there's no turning back anymore? I mean, if you look at all of the dystopian novels, the Blade Runners out there, <laughs> is, is that inev inevitable now? Do we still have a choice? It's a hard one. I, it's a hard yeah. one. Yeah. 
I, I don't think it's too late yet, but I kind of I kind of agree with you that it's probably not too far away before it will be too late. I think yeah. And actually, the, the, the isolationism of nation-states we talked about earlier mm. is in a large part driven by the power of these global companies. Because it's the fact that they want that governments want to kind of stop that power, that they close borders, be they physical or logical. They kind of go hand in hand there. So the yeah. competing, pulling, pushing. Yeah. So the, the final point for this episode is that of net neutrality and net neutrality itself took quite a bit of a hit during 2020 with the sort of us decisions to essentially abolish net neutrality mm-hmm. the obviously the the geopolitical situation has changed in the us and there are now discussions about reinstating net neutrality but it's not it's not as simple as just putting the wheels back on the bus here like there's it there's a lot more once you've decided to break something like this down there's a lot more work to reinstate it and you can guarantee that this is not just a you know oh well let's just put net neutrality version 1.0 back in place like this is this is going to be a new variant of net neutrality if indeed that does sort of go through during the next sort of year or two or a couple of years. But I I don't know I don't know really how much longer net neutrality as a concept can really continue. You know, for partially because of some of the issues we've already talked about. If you've got, you know, nation states or you know groups of nations deciding their own you know what their um you know what their people can see and you know how they can interact with the wider world then you know you're already you're already sacrificing your net neutrality in some cases and then you've got sort of the fact that certain parts of the 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 internet are very heavily influenced by organizations nation states whether it's i think yon you pointed out when before we'd started recording that large chunks of the internet in in sort of places like africa are basically owned by or provided by facebook and, and google and fa- facebook is the internet as, as far as some people are are concerned so you could uh, you could say in some cases well, we're already living that world in in some places on the planet. So it's probably not too much of a stretch to see where that would go from here. Yeah, I've got a couple of points I want to discuss on this one. The first short one is the fact that the US had net neutrality and it went away is significant because people saw net neutrality as a, a right, something you're entitled to. It can be taken away just like that. A certain yeah. person comes into power, it's gone. And that yeah. already makes it impossible to reinstate version 1 because version 2 will have to have something in there to try and avoid that from happening. But you can't. I mean, the moment your government changes and the uh, US has a very 
uh, bipolar, I guess I could say, a government structure. It's left or right. There's no middle. There's no gray ground anymore. And a lot of nations in the world having the same evolution happening, basically, to populism of popular politics. Mm-hmm. But that kind of means that the whole net neutrality thing is never going to be finished. It's going to be an ongoing struggle with ups and downs, lefts and rights. The Facebook example, you're right, you talked about this earlier. And in Africa, basically, if you want to go on the internet, you log onto Facebook first. But that doesn't mean your net, uh, your internet experience isn't neutral. Because as long as Facebook just makes you log in and then regardless where you go on the internet, you have the same speeds, the same capabilities, that's still a neutral approach. Now, obviously, but we don't that's know that's, that that's, but that, we don't know that that's the case, though. That's the thing. It's how much I, transparency do you really get? I think in, in countries like Africa, because it was still kind of starting up, and I'm talking about the rural Africa thing, of course. If you look, South Africa is totally different, obviously. Uh, the is still so small, so it doesn't really matter. But obviously, Facebook does this out of the goodness of its heart, just to help humanity fully philanthropically. Altruism isn't a part of this. Obviously, they want to have this power to be able to steer people to go where they want them to go, obviously. Last thing I want to talk about, and you can decide if it's true or not. Uh, the big companies say that net neutrality is bad because that means they can't give people the best experience on the internet. I mean, if Facebook says that, it has to be right, right? I mean, they wouldn't lie. Yeah. I, I, as much as I admire net neutrality and the concepts behind it, I think it is one of those those sort of features that is not long for this world. Um, I don't think net neutrality will survive through to twenty thirty. At least not in the not in the same way that we saw it existing a couple of years ago. I I got a bit more of an ambivalent uh, is ambivalence. I don't know. I think it's going to be dependent on the person. For the vast majority of internet consumers who are not technologically sophisticated, who just take what is offered to them, net neutrality will disappear. But I do think that there will be enough legislation or whatever in place that for the people that are more sophisticated, sophisticated, bad word perhaps, but are more technically oriented or working with Mm. this for for their life and need to have this knowledge, there will still be a way of circumvent most of the most egregious uh, offenses against net neutrality. So I do think there's still hope. But uh, for the vast majority, I do think um, it's a lost uh, battle. It's going to happen. Yep. Well, that's our first view on uh, on what the uh, 2030s internet will likely uh, look like from our perspectives. It's also depressing. Oh, bit, bit of a depressing <laughs> sort of episode so far. So let's uh, let's hope that our, our second part is a bit more uplifting and that maybe there's maybe there's some good uh, that could come out of this next evolution of the internet. Let's see. But with that, it's all we have time for today for this episode you can support the podcast you can become a patreon contributions to help us uh, put out this kind of quality content 
you're on YouTube, like, subscribe, hit notification bells. Uh, I'm going to make Dave say this every week now because it's getting boring. You can go to www.roaringelephant.org. You can find links to the Patreon page, more information about podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter using the at roaringelephant tag. And you can still send feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. If you're in 2030, try the email address, see if I'm still there. Until then, I mean, next episode, not 2030. My name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Goodbye. See you then.